David, and to my left is our incredible eight-figure CEO, Anthony Milton. And on our first episode of our new show, 100% Tilted, stories with winning underdogs. Today we have our first episode we're excited about here in December of a chilly Houston, Texas, which is kind of unusual. It'll last about a week. But the other reason why we're really excited is we have a champion of all Texans and fitting for our episode one of this new show, who is Texas State House of Representatives District 15, business owner, entrepreneur, husband, father, grandfather, and pastor, and friend to many, Mr. Steve Toth. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. How's it going? (laughs) Going good. Good. (laughs) Well, a lot's going on right now. we got a lot to talk about, a lot of things happening in this city, this state, this country. But... I think, you know, for a lot of us, uh, and I know for anybody that's in business, um, anybody that's just paying attention, there is friction uh, many times between the perspectives of being just being a citizen and those that represent us. I think people are becoming more aware uh, of really what their vote can do versus just uh, enabling a few to elect those that represent the many, uh, which I think awareness is good. Uh, awareness with action is better, but there is this kind of disconnect, the separation between the citizen, the business owner and the politicians, but we're having some politicians like yourself that are, uh, becoming vocal. I mean, you stood with us, uh, back in May when we, uh, opened up, uh, tuned up the Manly Salon here in Magnolia store number one that opened back in October of 2015. And, uh, you stood with us, uh, when, uh, we kind of waited for the authorities to show up to uh to enforce some mandates from our governor we, we couldn't wait to get involved <laughs> I, mean, we, I was just so angry because if this was really about the data and the science why are we why are we putting these people out of business when the data is telling us the exact opposite that mm-hmm. this is not where the spread is occurring it's occurring at home mm-hmm. it's not occurring at bars it's not occurring at restaurants it's not occurring at salons mm-hmm. on the wikipedia page it actually talks about that a little bit on your Wikipedia page, it says, in August 2020, Toth, along with fellow state reps, sued Texas Governor Greg Abbott over a $295 million COVID-19 contact tracing contract. Abbott awarded to a Frisco, Texas technology firm without approval from the Texas legislature. In May, Toth protested Abbott's lockdown order by getting a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what's, you know what's insane about that thing, though, is that... Is that <laughs> Months later, Nancy Pelosi got her hair cut, and they're equating what I did with what she did. And I'm like, no, guys, she got it done in secret. Mm. She, she was the one saying, y'all should not, the great unwashed should not be able to get their hair cut. Mm-hmm. But no haircuts, you know, for thee but not for me kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it publicly is, is a message that yeah, what the government had done was they had overstepped their bounds. Mm-hmm. They, they're not allowed to tell people who can and can't work that rights don't come from the state of Texas. They don't come from the federal government. They're granted to us by nature's God, our founding father said. Therefore, the government doesn't get to tell you if you can live. They don't get to tell you if you can sing. They don't get to tell you if you can dance. They don't get to tell you if you can work. That's up to you. We had no right to infringe on your ability to employ 600 people and to let them make a decent standard of living for themselves. Mm-hmm. It was just wrong. You took a position that was a pretty good odds with the governor, same position that we took, 
that when it comes to the governor's rights and powers, uh, there's the Constitution, the state of Texas, and there's a Powers Act. And we're aligned with respect to this should have been a legislative issue. Right. Uh, and the governor is still of the opinion that it's his it's sole discretion with respect to the opening and the closing. Walk me through how that's uh, either benefited or hurt your political capital, your friends oh, I mean, in Austin. It was, I had a great session last year. I mean, I, I passed a lot of really great legislation. We, um, Senator Creighton and I passed the Jones Forest Preservation Act, which is going to keep Jones Forest just right across the street from y'all from being developed. Um, we thought that was a key thing. I, I passed a bill that, that um, creates an ethics um, panel for, the, for Montgomery County and similar counties of our size that enables them to actually have the ability to lead full-blown investigations into government corruption. Uh, we created another bill that, um, that passed, became law, that, that forces local governments, county governments, to disclose how much of our tax dollars are being used to, to pay um, lobbyists in Austin that actually work against the will of the people. We got a lot done, and it was really exciting. And then to come into a session like this where all of a sudden you're at odds with the governor um, was not something I was looking forward to because it's going to mean that, you know, my, my ability to pass legislation this session is, is, is going to become, you know, it's dwindled greatly. So I'm not excited about it, but at the end of the day, I feel like I did the right thing, that, you know, I, I'm called a representative. I'm not called, uh, uh, predominantly, I'm not called a legislator. I'm a state representative, which means I represent the people of House District 15, its businesses, and its families. And that's who I answer to, not the governor. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe your goal for this legislative session is to propose a bill that would narrow the scope of the governor's powers right. in an act of emergency to yeah. only 30 days. Yeah, so kind of getting back to your original question, his powers were derived from an act that happened in like 73 or 74. And it was, it was basically in the event of a hurricane. Uh, it was in the event of a wildfire, um, some kind of natural disaster, flooding, where he could take a few county, uh, several counties and, and declare a disaster for 30 to 60 days. It wasn't so that he could take over the entire state of Texas <laughs> and every single individual's life and business and run them out of business. It was never intended for that. In fact, the Constitution grants him the ability to call a special session so that we can call co-equal branches of government, and that's what the legislature is. It's a co-equal branch. It was never intended for this. And think about this for a second, guys. What if, what if someone becomes governor one day and says, wow, I think that oil and gas is an existential danger, and we're going to shut oil and gas down in the state of Texas? What's to stop them from doing that? I mean, the, the, he has created a precedence that is, is so far out of bounds from what the legislative intent was on his government powers. So we're going to have to trim that back a little bit. It's a great idea. We talked a little about before the show, and we talked about it on the last podcast, with the county judges and the individual mayors having vastly different opinions. You took over the um, Texas seat from Mark Keogh. Right. Our county judge here in Montgomery County. Great guy, great ethics, very, very forthcoming, very honest, very transparent. And his opinion is uh, the hospitals are fine. The police force, it's not their job to police individual businesses, especially private businesses. So we're going to let the businesses be in their own. We're going to let them decide. We're going to support and help where we need to support and help. But by and large, Montgomery County is open for business. Right. 
and you go across down south to Harris County, across a small river, and it's almost the complete opposite. Yeah, and here's the here's the really you know they're they're in a code red right, which is the highest level of of fear and danger. Well, what if this really was like the Spanish flu of 1918, where you're going to see a million deaths, and um, law enforcement, uh, first responders are, would be completely overwhelmed. My fear is that moving forward is that no one's going to take us seriously again. The, ne- the next time something <clears throat> like this happens, no one will take us seriously. And they're going to say, screw it. We, you know, you, you fed us a line last time to, <coughs> to control us and, 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 you know, we're not going to go along with it. From a, from a private citizen and from a private business, I'll, I'll tell you that a lot of my counterparts and people that I communicate with are losing faith on nearly every level. Of oh, yeah. Whether it be the city level, the state level, the county level, or the federal level. You know, one of the things that the Powers Act gave the governor was the ability to declare a, a state of emergency that would, in, in theory, provide quickly resources and essential ne- uh, needs to the disaster area. Right. So if a hurricane hits in Galveston, he can create Galveston County as a declaration of disaster. So FEMA money can come in. Immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. right away. Yep. But over the course of seven, eight months, nine months, ten months, we've seen some assistance and some guidance in the beginning, but nothing since then. No guidance, no direction, no thought processes uh, from a federal level or from a state level. And I tell you, it's frustrating from a business side uh, because they're trying to have it both ways. We only have so much runway and so much capital that we can dispose. But the problem is they've created a monster, and now they don't know how to control it. They don't know what to do with it. We were told 2.2 million deaths with no shutdown, 1.1 million deaths with a complete and total shutdown. That's what we were told. We're at 300,000. We are told 1.1 million after the first year. And yet what's interesting is that in 2020, we'll have 20,000 fewer deaths than projected. So typically the United States grows by about 40,000 deaths per year. The death rate grows 40,000 a year. We're gonna have 20,000 fewer um, than projected. Mm-hmm. Even with COVID. Numbers so don't add up. Those, that, those are CDC numbers. Those are mm-hmm. CDC projected numbers. Those are not my numbers. I know there's a bogus meme that's going around Facebook right now that shows, you know, 100,000 fewer deaths. That's not true. It's 20,000 fewer deaths. And those are CDC numbers connected to the CDC website. Come, goes out in my email that I send out every week. And so, you know, the problem, though, is that no one wants to hear any good news because they have done such a great job of scaring the hell out of everybody mm-hmm. in the first few months of this thing, feeding them all this misinformation about morgue, you know, mobile morgues and everything else that now no one wants to hear any good news. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hear any good positive data out of this thing. And so these guys just don't know what to do. So that's why there's no guidance. There's no direction whatsoever because they don't know what to do with it. They've created this monster of hysteria, and now they don't know how to manage people through this thing. One of the things that's necessary is from, from <coughs> you're never going to stop interstate travel. I travel pretty frequently, airlines, road travel. Right. I was in Tampa Airport three weeks ago getting an update on a couple of our locations, and across there was a United Flights, so there's eight terminals, uh, and every single one <coughs> is a different state. So you're coming from Florida to New York City to New Jersey to Houston, to Atlanta. So the interstate travel is never going to stop. And I don't think there's the ability for any governor or, or the federal level to stop travel between Texas and Louisiana as a, as a specific example. But within the state, 
my argument and my thought process is that there's such wildly different views between the mayors and the judges that if the legislature came together and created the parameters for a shutdown and then created the parameters for an opening, then it'd be actual law that would be enacted that right. no mayor, that no city council, no judge would have any ability to do other than conform or private citizens for that matter. That's what my bill does, though. It, it, it limits uniformly across the United or across Texas, which that would have to happen at the federal level as well, which I'd, I'd love to see that. I mean, I've, I've got to give Trump credit for one of the things that he said early on in this thing in March. He said, we're going to make sure that the cure doesn't take more lives than the actual pandemic. And th it is right now. I mean, we've, um, I'm, I'm on the board of directors for Mighty Oaks. We help veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. We've seen a 30% increase in the number of suicides among mm -hmm. active duty guys. We have no idea. We think there may be as much as a 50% increase in suicides among veterans, which was 22 a day before the pandemic. Go ahead and throw millions of these guys out of work. Um, yeah. Take away their ability to be involved in these these support groups, which are, are, are a lifeline for these guys, then just say, hey, just go home and drink and watch Netflix. You know, what could go wrong with that? And that's basically what we've done to these guys. It's just, it's criminal. Isolation can be very dangerous. Oh, it, I mean, isolation isn't healthy for a healthy person. You know, mm -hmm. take someone with post-traumatic stress disorder, clinical depression, and substance use disorder, and you're killing them. Mm-hmm. You know, with a lot of the mask mandating, uh, there are a lot of individuals that, you know, they'll use a mask in, in therapy to actually induce stress to help people with anxiety. And now you're forcing so many people to wear these masks that are not used to wearing these masks. And it's creating some of a stressful situation already because, I mean, there's not really any sanitization standards. <laughs> and we ran into that where, you know, as a, as a company, our standards, you know, with tune-up the Manly Salon, with martinis and manicures, even with balanced foods, you know, we operate with food handling and then with sanitization standards uh, from the TDLR, uh, we already operate at a higher level than even standards require. Right. And then when you look in uh, the public and you see, you know, credit card machines with some film over them that everybody's touching. <laughs> You know, you see, yeah. uh, you know, people gloved up, masked up, visored up, and then they're touching every service and they touch their phone and then they put their phone to their face. There's just a lot of these things that don't make sense. It's just total cross-contamination, but, yeah. but we're supposed to feel better because that guy had rubber gloves on or right. latex gloves. And yet, you know, it's surgical centers, ridiculous. even elective surgeries, whether, you know, elective carries a very broad term, but you go into surgery, that is the most sanitary environment you could ever be in. Right. And yet they're not allowed to do those. It's very strange in how people have adopted out of fear that's leading them. And then in this state of fear, they don't know what to do, you know, so that they it's like this constant state of panic. Well, and it, it's government has to act like they've got this under control. Right. Mm. And so when there was an uptick um, a month or so ago, restaurants were at it, it's funny. We went from 50 percent capacity with restaurants to 75 percent, but we kept the same distancing requirements, right? So restaurants, unless they can be completely open 100%, they can't make it. Mm -hmm. they, they just cannot make it. And so even when we went from 50 to 75%, the most they could do is add maybe three or four tables and get to maybe 60% because of the distancing deal. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they were still absolutely, totally struggling. And then the governor went and backed it down again to 50%. Why did he do that? The reality is that 
it's it's just it's a it's it's to show it's 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 to say to the people look we've got this we we can ha- we can handle this the polling was saying that you know that that government had to shut and close things down even though the data doesn't support any of that mm-hmm. even though the data shows very clearly that 80% of the of the infections are happening at home among people that it's not gatherings it's not even large gatherings it's not religious gatherings it's not concerts it's not big gatherings of any kind it's it's when people are clustered in a home over extended periods of time long extended it's not a party it's just gathering at home over a long extended period of time it's not about the data it's not about the information uh it's just so it's so frustrating you know it's like if social distancing worked then the numbers wouldn't be going up if the mask worked numbers wouldn't be going up if isolation worked numbers would not be going up and yet the death rate is going down so, Dramatically. so you, when you take a step back with a 90,000 foot view and go, wait a minute, like none of this adds up in this overstepping, overreaching. And even when you say, you know, when the governor says restaurants have to step back to 50% capacity, when their leases aren't reduced by 50%, their construction costs aren't, aren't reduced by 50%. They still have their operational requirements as a business. The, the, where we are in our economic state was based on just this bare economy, which is there was just money, there was customers, the economy was strong, and all of a sudden brought to a screeching halt. Yeah, as a business, as a small business, as a restauranteer, as a, a salon owner, as any business owner. My question, and I'm sure a lot of people ask this. You know, the governor says 50% capacity, but is that law? Can they stand up and go, no, I'm going to allow everybody into my business because this is my business as a private citizen. I'm not, their business is not owned by the governor does not have the right, um, I I took an oath to defend the Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic. When the founders of Texas and the founders of this republic said, you take an oath to defend the the state and the nation against enemies, both foreign and domestic, who are domestic enemies of the Constitution? Mm -hmm. Who are they? Not a rhetorical question. Who are they? Well, they're politicians. They're office holders that overstep their bounds. And one of the things that Payne said early on, he said, let no, let no more be, be heard of, of confidence in men, but let us bind them down with the chains of the Constitution to protect us from their foolishness. And that's the reality is that this is the foolishness, foolishness of humanity and leaders that we think that we can control other people, that we can tell them what to do, mm-hmm. that we in some way, shape, or form can ensure security in our land by controlling people. We mm-hmm. can't. I mean, there's no correlation. You look at the... California, New York never really o- ever opened compared to Texas, yeah. but yeah. New York's on fire today. Again, mm. um, they've never really opened. Well, we've been open, and the only place that the Texas is really struggling, we're not struggling in Houston. We're not struggling here in the Woodlands. We're struggling um, down on the border. We're struggling because Northern Mexico is on fire right now with with COVID, and. Um, there's little to no treatment that's given to people early on while the, the viral load is low. So let's talk about, you know, treatment with this, you know, rapid push of this vaccination, right? Um, you know, there's questions, you know, when the, uh, there, there's three phases through determining the efficacy of a, of, a, of a treatment or a pharmaceutical, right? And looking at the protocols that go into place when it takes five to 10 years to determine if something's going to be safe. Then you have the 60 seconds of a 90 second commercial telling you the side effects as people are smiling and playing right. in the park. Right. Yeah. 
we don't have that. It's very unknown. Now there's a lot of who knows misinformation floating around through memes and whatnot, but to look at a vaccination now that's been created and ready and distributed within less than nine. Hey, months. what could go wrong with something that developed under warp speed? <laughs> Are you going to take the vaccine? Um, no, I'm not. And that's just a personal decision. I'm not going to try and discourage anybody else from taking it, but sure. my personal decision, I've got a friend that I've got several friends that have developed COVID that had many comorbidity issues mm. and um, they got treatment early on and they're fine. And if I develop COVID, I'm going to do the same thing, and so will my wife. Mm -hmm. it, there certainly seems to be this underlying narrative that it may be required. I was actually in Target uh, about a week and a half ago uh, with my kids, getting some medicine for my little one. And I heard the pharmacist or pharmacy tech tell this couple, uh, yeah, we're going to be asking for your driver's license when the vaccine is ready because we're going to be putting everything into a database so that anytime you travel, you go anywhere, they're going to be able to check to see if you've actually been vaccinated for COVID. I don't know about you, but that scares the living hell out of me. It should. It absolutely <laughs> should. Yeah. Yep. That's crazy. We'll be able to cross a border because I don't have a certain dot on my driver's license right. where they can do a check. Well, yeah. you can't fly. You've not been vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're in a, we're in a different age, man. I've it never, is scary. Years ago, they used to call it the flu shot, and now they call it the flu vaccine. From what I can gather, it's the exact same thing. And I've always opted out of that every single year. I've opted my kids out of every single year as well because I just didn't think it was necessary. There's certain vaccines that polio vaccine is an example that's completely necessary. Um, it's been proven over the course of 90 years. I think it's been out. Mm -hmm. um, reduced the mortality rate, mm -hmm. limited negativity on it. With respect to the flu shot, the flu vaccine, my opinion is very, very similar to that of a COVID vaccine is that if you eat healthy, you live a healthy lifestyle, you take your supplements, take your vitamins, Wash your hands. People should not be told to wash their hands. <laughs> Restaurants shouldn't have to be. <laughs> well, I, I use this in my initial pod speak, right? So it, it, you, you hear this thought process. Well, all these companies. I have don't this, know. Maybe this, some guys do. <laughs> when they leave the bathroom, they're like, come on, dude, wash your hands. You know, you're watching this, this guy just walk out. You didn't wash his hands. I'm like, come on. This newfound, we've increased our sanitation practices. We've revitalized our health. You know, hotels, chains, and restaurants do it. And my question to them is always, what the hell were they doing before? Yeah. Mm. Right? How How... How subpar was the health standards of that establishment before that all of a sudden now you have this revitalization or this, this thought process to increase it? Uh, and it's the same thing for COVID. So I'm also not going to uh, uh, take the vaccine. I don't think it's going to be mandatory. Uh, I don't know how they could possibly do it. Well, I don't, I, I don't know how they, they will can do convince. It's like what you just said, right? They're not going to let you on an airline unless unless you've had it, or they won't let you into a concert hall unless you've had it. So I think that's one of the things between <coughs> public government and private enterprises that private enterprise, you know, we have the ability to refuse service for any customer. Right. Right. Obviously there's certain things we can't refuse service because of the color of their skin or the gender or the sexual orientation. But if you come in and you're, and you're drunk and you're acting like an asshole, yeah, I can, here's the door, you're out. I have the ability to refuse service or you have the ability to not build a pool for somebody right. if they're not the right personality for you. But conversely, uh, I go to Sam's Club quite often and they require masks. I elect to shop at Sam's Club, so I abide by their rules and I wear a mask. Uh, just like I abide by the rules of wearing a shirt and shoes inside of it. So I think that's important for a private industry to be able to have, maintain those freedoms. Yeah, that's their, that's their call. And if United Airlines or some other airlines requires you to have a vaccine to fly, there's going to be other options. Right. And what will happen, and this is one of the great things about this state and this country, is that all these options always pop up. 
And if, if company A requires you have this, and there's enough people that don't want to do it, then there's going to be a company B that is created out right. of necessity, out of the market requirements. I mean, we made a post on uh, our social media for Balanced Foods that no customer will ever be required to wear a mask. We're not going to create conflict because of your personal decision, right? The comments and the shares went off the chart. You just earned my business for life. Like, yeah. we honestly were kind of prepared for some negative blowback. Right. Nothing of the sort. It, it was actually a little humbling <laughs> to see the, the, the community support going, well, I have no idea who you are, but you just earned my business. Just over, and over, probably for a week, just the community came out. And then, of course, you have the one or two Karens from time to time. That, right. You know, yep. they have this. I just couldn't standards. imagine a scenario where I, as a business owner, would, would put my employees in the position to attempt to force a customer to do something. I mean, look at what just happened on uh, United. With, uh, oh, that two-year-old. With the two-year-old. The, the two-year-old, they made every effort to keep the mask on their two-year-old and just wouldn't happen. They kicked him off the flight. A, with, two, a two-year-old. Yeah. Now, who? to me, that, that seems like some kind of mandate within a company where you've never had kids. A two-year-old trying to keep, oh, I know. keep something on their face? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I want to transition a little bit into two topics, but the same wording, but different phrasing of it. Politics in money and then money in politics. And we'll start with the second one. Money in politics kind of rules the day. Yeah. One of the things that, that I'm sure, and I want to get your opinion on it, but from a, from, a, from a voter and from a private citizen, this frustrates, I think, probably the general populace is this consistent and constant handout. I need you to donate. I need money. I need capital. I need to be able to outspend the other opponent. I need more commercial TV time. I need more airtime. And all of it requires dollars. Right. So it feels like it's kind of constantly, you're the constant Salvation Army. I know. And that's the, that's <clears throat> it's really the hard part of it. But it's it's also like a necessary evil. When I, when I ran for office back in 2011 when I made the decision, I went up against somebody that had you know, I think I raised and spent 47,000. Uh, he spent 400,000, right? So he outspent me, you know, 10 to one, but I still won. And so it's not like, it's not like you have to have as much money, but you've got to have enough money. And mm. <clears throat> while my money didn't end up, end up coming from the political action committees, um, it all came from private citizens, dollar here, $10 here, you know, someone pitches in a thousand dollars. It's a huge, huge donation. Meanwhile, you're going up against establishment politicians that are getting hundred thousand dollar donations, mm -hmm. literally. And, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's brutal. What year did you run against Kevin Brady for his Congress seat? 2016. So I read a little bit, 2016 and Phil, help me fill in the blanks here. You raised something like $89,000. 175. 175 and got 37% yeah. of the vote. And yeah. he spent a million five. Well, he, he spent a million five, and then uh, the speaker's pack spent probably another million five. So that was spent for him. Um, the key thing, it was a four-man race, though, right? And so he only got 52.9% of the vote. It was, it was a really tight, tight race. It came this close to going into a runoff. How good does it feel for you? Because you've done this several times in, in I'm, I'm assuming your professional career, but also in your public career, when you're up against something that's much larger than you, the force of PACs and established candidates and certain large companies' favorites, and you're the little, you're the odd man out, and you've underraised and you've probably thought to yourself you're underpromoted, 
and you haven't got enough TV time and you're going to let your constituents down, but you still come out victorious. Yeah. I, I'm the youngest of six, right? So I was I <laughs> definitely was, a winning underdog. I was the, I, I was the runt in the family. I'm the, I'm the shortest. I'm the youngest, you know, I'm not Steve. I'm Stevie <laughs> to my older brothers and sisters. And uh, even still to this day at 60 years of age, I'm still Stevie and I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, but I was all, you know, you know, you're, you know, keep quiet. You know mm. what you're talking about. You're the youngest, mm. you know, and it's kind of like, man, I, I've been used to that my whole life. And um, you can't succeed. You can't get it. You can't win. And uh, it, it was a blessing. Mm. It was really a blessing because it really taught me perseverance from a very early age. <laughs> nice. There it is. Yeah. That's that driver. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I got it from my dad. My dad, my dad was the youngest of eight. And uh, wow. he was a state champion speed skater. No um, kidding. He was five foot six, five foot seven, and and just um, on ice, ice skating. Yeah, no he kidding. was a speed skater in upstate New York. Wow. Yeah, wow. Went into the Merchant Marines and was a was a boxer, the flyweight class, and he he was the champion on his ship. You're talking and, his language now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, it just um, it, it's funny because in the capital. Mm all the lobbyists have derogatory names that they don't want, you know, cause they belittle the reps and rightly so we deserve it. And, uh, uh, they have like nicknames for us, like dances with wolves, right? If you've seen Dent, you know, that movie with Kevin Costner, oh, yeah. mine was rep who runs. Cause I, I don't have a, my gate is, I, is I don't walk. I, I, I just move really quickly. That's my speed. And if I'm not moving mm. fast all day long, it wears me out. If I have a slow day and I'm just standing around doing nothing, it just, it kills me. Was I that, can't do it. Was that basically uh, your mom, your momentum of survival as a kid, trying to run to the table to get food that was yes, left? Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. The only, the only time the only time I got more than, more than enough food was when mom served liver. <laughs> <laughs> so politics and money. To switch the words around, politics yeah. and money. Texas has a rainy day fund. Right. Uh, massive rainy day fund. Started in the 80s after the oil crash. Uh, and last reports was $10.2 billion. Right. Uh, the legislator elected not to use any of it during this last session. I'm not sure if that was roadblocked or by design. Uh, are there any thoughts to open that? Well, day fund we, we, t- we didn't use any of the existing funds, but we did tap into the fund in several areas for road construction um, and a couple other things, too that uh, were infrastructure related. We didn't want to take the fund though and, uh, and accrue it to existing expenditures. We wanted to put it into one-time expenditures so that uh, the fund would not be a source of, of revenue um, towards something else. It's, we're, we're trying to restrain the growth of, of government spending. So. Is there any thought process around using that this next legislative session to help out small businesses. I would, or I would be food one, banks. I would be in 100%, 110% support of of the state of Texas doing something to help the businesses that they destroyed as a result of this from mm-hmm. the rainy day fund. In similar nature to the payroll protection program. Yes, absolutely, and it not not as a not as a loan, but as an actual a, actual grant. I mean, we destroyed lives. Mm-hmm. Right across the street from you guys on 1488 is Deacon Baldy's, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this is funny. You, you alluded to the fact that I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. And hey. the, <laughs> what, what's funny is that my political legacy is that I helped open bars and restaurants. <laughs> right? wrong with that? <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But Deacon Baldi's is an example. Joey over there across the street, he's like, dude, I'm shut down. I've been shut down for four months, yet I'm going to still owe Montgomery County $60,000 in property taxes. Mm-hmm. How do I survive this? Mm. And so... We worked with the food trucks uh, and formed a general services agreement, and it was acceptable to the TABC to get them back opened again. And um, yet, for every one of those, there are a hundred other ones yeah. that never got open. Mm-hmm. Their lives were destroyed. Sixteen percent of the businesses of the restaurants that we shut down in the state of Texas will not reopen. Those are restaurants that have been open for thirty years or more. <sighs> and you can feel bad about someone that was in business for 30 years, the state of Texas destroyed. Or you can think about the fact that there's some guy and his wife or spouse, they've been saving up to open up a restaurant for 30 years. And they finally open it up in January of 2020. And then one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. Their dream of 30 years is destroyed because of the state of Texas. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And, And, you know, we're seeing massive numbers of suicides, divorces, domestic violence, spousal abuse. Um, it's awful. It's just awful. And I think the state of Texas owes these people. Are, <clears throat> from a political perspective, and again, there's some, sometimes there's kind of that disconnect between citizens and those that are supposed to represent us. Is there any empathy from from Congress, from those that are supposed to represent us of the hardship that's really happening? Because it's sometimes I think there's there's uh, an assumption that nobody cares You're from the top. Yeah. And people are bleeding. They're hemorrhaging. They're at a total loss. Does anybody notice anybody care? I, I don't you know, I don't know. I mean, that's a really great question. So. And I, I've t- I talk with Brandon Creighton, Senator Creighton about this a lot, and it, it just it tears at him. Um, it tears at me. And I think, I think it hurts most people. I think that, though, that the vast majority of these people are kind of like in their little bubble. Mm-hmm. And so they just don't see it. They don't yeah. interact with people. They, they interact with the powerful. They un- interact with the wealthy. They interact with people that, for all intents and purposes, are shielded or immune from economic downturns. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, these are people that do not live paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. right? And so... They're cool. They, f- they feel like they understand what's really going on, but they don't. They just, they don't. It's not that they don't care. It's just, it's just outside of their, their, their realm. They just can't imagine it. Is, is that one of the reasons why you were looking at uh, term limits in politics? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean. To kind of get rid of the career uh, politician? Yeah. Now, and I would just say this. The state of Texas the average stay there is like 4.5 years. Mm. That's it in the Texas legislature. <laughs> What's that? A little bit more than an NFL player. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. So Texas doesn't really struggle with it as much as is um, it, uh, they do at the federal level. Mm. And part of it is because we only pay $600 a month. You're not going to get rich doing this. You shouldn't get rich doing this. I know some politicians have found a way to monetize it, but the vast majority of people don't. And they just go and they serve 48 years or whatever, and, and they come home and do their, you know, run their business. Mm-hmm. As a business owner, because you, uh, you have two different businesses, right? right? Um, how long have you had those? So I started the construction company back in 2003. Mm. 
and uh, I started the service business in 2007. Did you, was your dad a carpenter? Like where, where did that, where uh, that you know, it's that weird for construction come from? So, um, yeah, my, my dad always, you know, he, he was always fixing and repairing and doing stuff. And at an early age, I just wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. So I started taking engineering courses <clears throat> when I started uh, Acclaim Pools and I just fell in love with it. And I, I realized that I just have a knack for it mm-hmm. and uh, just really enjoyed it. As a business owner, you know, husband, you know, dad, there's, you got a lot in your sphere and then you wanted to step into politics. What was that driver for you where you were like, I mean, cause you clearly had enough on your plate. Right. And it's not like that's going to be a easy add on, uh, to be able to do had number one, what inspired you? Number two, uh, how do you manage all that? 2008, um, rock and roll and the, the, the economy starts slowing down because of the economic downturn. 2009, the legislature passed this pool light safety bill, right? They always give these grand names to these stupid things that they do to impede our freedom. And what it did was it, it saw, it basically sought to regulate our business and it put hundreds of the little small service companies out of business across the state of Texas, threw people completely out of work. And I was so angry about it that I decided to run for office and, and Mm. I ran against the guy that was one of the joint authors of the bill and, uh, and beat him. (laughs) Great story. It's a David and Goliath (laughs) thing. Great story. So Montgomery County, I don't know the exact, percentages, but I think it's around 68, 69% voted Republican. Right. Um, uh, 30% voted Democrat. And in, in Montgomery County, uh, I saw this, I travel 1488 several times a day, major thoroughfare, five lanes, each direction, 60, 70,000 cars a day on Fridays and Saturdays leading up to election season, they would do a Trump rally on the corner of 1488 and 2978, <laughs> couple hundred people, trucks, music, flags, it was slowed down traffic quite a bit, which is frustrating because yeah. it's really bad enough there. Right. Um, and then on Saturdays, they did the same thing, but they did it on the corner of 242 and 1488. During the day, a couple hundred people. Mm. And then about 100 yards away, they would do a Biden rally. And there was one launch five, here. six people, <laughs> you know, one truck. And, it, and I, thought it was kinda, I, I thought it was kind of disheartening because you have some compassion because both sides have some good ideas. Both sides have some, some good sides. Both sides have some downsides. What what could the citizens do and what could the legislators do to help bridge the gap so there's not such a polarizing effect between the Trump supporter and the Biden supporter to where in counties like Montgomery, where it's just overwhelming to where the Biden supporter really feels like a minority of a minority? I, it, it's hard, right? Because this is one of the this is the reddest county in in a deeply red state. Right. So 40 percent of Ted Cruz's margin of victory came from this county. Forty-three percent of Greg Abbott's margin of victory came from this county alone. Forty-six uh, percent of Donald Trump's margin of victory came from Montgomery County. This is a deeply red county, but I mean, the only thing I can do is just say my cell phone number is two eight one seven seven zero seven two eight seven. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're struggling, call my office. We'll help you. We did. We helped countless people that they got thrown out of work that were calling the Texas Workforce Commission. And, you know, days and days and days and day, day after day, trying to get them only to hear, please leave a a voicemail message, only to find out that the voicemail box for the Texas Workforce Commission was full. And so they would call our office. We went to work helping people 
basically just navigate the Texas Workforce Commission so that they get benefits. And we never asked, you know, are you Republican, are you Democrat, are you Biden supporter, are you Trump supporter? We just wanted to help out. Great. What can businesses and individuals do to support you in the upcoming campaign that you have? Come to the Capitol. Speak up. Um, We have a a very citizenry involved process. This Texas Capitol is not, it's not our Capitol, it's the people's, it's the people's house. And we need you guys, guys to show up in January. And when there's legislation that is important to you, come and testify for it, speak up, um, and let your voice be heard. Go on social media and start getting involved. We need you to get involved. You know, you look at so many people's Instagram account, Facebook accounts, and Twitter accounts, and there's a lot of good stuff about their family, but there's nothing about the things that impact their family, like the way government is run. Get involved. Mm-hmm. Great advice. There's, uh, we're starting to have some big tech companies come to Texas, um, and there's somewhat of a fear that they're going to California, Texas. <laughs> yeah, um, good, on one hand, uh, are they being incentivized to come here? Oh, they sure are. Yeah, they are. And um, it's you're, you're picking winners and losers, again. And um, I just don't think there's a place for it. It's the enterprise fund that the governor, it's a slush fund that they use to incentivize these these companies to come here, and we shouldn't be doing it. I'm just so against it. From from kind of a layman, what, is the, what does that mean, and how does that impact the state? <clears throat> well, what we do is we, the, the legislature appropriates money to the governor's fund, enterprise fund, enterprise development fund that he can use to cut deals to bring Amazon, to bring Tesla, um, to bring HP here. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just, I'm against it. I just, I think it's ridiculous. We don't need to do it. Texas is a great climate. It's a great place for businesses to come. We don't, you know, we don't create a lot of unnecessary regulations that you have to navigate through and that you have to spend money on to work around like they do in California. Come here because it's a great place to live and work. But mm-hmm. I'm totally against us throwing money at these guys. Steve, where can, uh, where can people connect with you? Um, Facebook, Twitter, um, toothfortexas.com, mm-hmm. or my cell, 281-770-7287. <laughs> and what's next for you? What do you have uh, upcoming? Um, session starts January 12th, and um, we're just getting ready for it right now. We've got probably 12 or 13 different pieces of legislation that we're working on. Uh, anything noteworthy? I know that you're, uh, you've done a little bit uh, looking at uh, just kind of the – the state of cannabis in Texas. We uh, want to go B to C. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not legalizing. We're just taking it from a jailable offense to a non-jailable offense. And the reality is that um, in across the United States, if 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 you're an inner city kid and you get you get caught with you know some you know an ounce or two of marijuana, you're going to go to jail. If you're a white kid that lives in Montgomery County, you're not going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates a sequence from that point forward. It's a cascading thing where the kid that goes to jail has an 80% recidivism rate. The kid that doesn't go to jail, like, has a recidivism rate about 5%. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality. And so I just would rather see us turn that into a ticketable offense and help that kid get treatment mm-hmm. and uh, keep, him out of, keep him out of jail. You think it will ever be legalized in Texas? I, yeah, I do think 
it's probably inevitable that mm. it will be at a federal level, it will be legalized. Mm. I don't know that necessarily what Colorado did was, was a great thing. Uh, it, you talk to law enforcement, you talk to a lot of people that were advocates for full-blown legalization in Colorado, and they're not anymore. So you're not doing anything to hurt the cartels. The cartels want legalization for the very simple reason that the government that will then come in and put this massive tax on it, right? Mm-hmm. So for a vendor, you know, pot costs this much, and then there's this much of a tax on it. Well, the cartel will come in and price it just 10% under. And here's the problem now is that when someone get, gets pulled over and they've got a bag of weed in their car, the cop doesn't know if that bag of weed was legally purchased or illegally purchased, which is why the cartels are excited about this. Mm. So it's not going to do anything to hurt the cartels. They're not saying, oh, bummer, you know, people are growing weed in California <laughs> or they're growing weed in, in Colorado or Texas. It's going to put us out of business. Nothing could be further from the truth. So recently, uh, Abbott came out and said he's not going to shut down the state. Right. Right. Um, maybe we had something to do with that. <laughs> I think collectively everyone <laughs> did. No, I'm serious, dude. I, 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 I think collectively um, he's, he's gotten the message, and I, I appreciate him for that. I appreciate mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that he's listening. <clears throat> I think it's good for him. I think in, in business is a lot like government with respect to uh, humility. And in the onset, the saying is you don't know what you don't know. Right. And that's what this kind of was. This was unknown foreign territory. Mm-hmm. But as there became more data, as there became more clarity around it, I think it's very, very important for people to be able to take a left turn when they took a right turn before or right. vice versa. So, you know, the decisions I made last week, last month, last year may not have been perfect, but it was the best I thought I could do with the tools and resources I had available. And now it's a new dawn. It's a new day. And let's change course on some things that didn't work. What would be interesting down the road, this would probably be some... PhD thesis project for a statistician is to take the cities and the counties or the states and watch where they had more harsh shutdown regulations versus less uh, versus the hospitalization and the death rate amongst them. My theory on Montgomery County versus Harris County, I don't think there's a dime's difference with respect to percentages of cases, infections, transmitting ventilators, deaths, hospitalizations. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a sum zero game that irrelevant well, to the nature of the shutdown yep. or the requirement of the mask, I think it's going to be net zero. Totally. You're absolutely right. I mean, Hidalgo, Harris County judge is certainly screaming to, uh, you know, empower her to do what she feels is necessary for the county. Uh, but Abbott's like, no, I got it. <laughs> but it, there's definitely an outcry for wanting some of that power back uh, for whatever reason, uh, which, you it's, know. It's the nature of man in 5,000 years of recorded history to gather power, and then once you've got power, to gather more power. Mm. It, it just That's well said. It, that is the history of man. Mm. Mm. Steve, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thank you, Steve. Fun it, to be with you. It's really great to have you. Um, uh, we're definitely going to put all your contacts, social, and everybody for how to get in touch with you. Uh, thanks for standing up for us. You're welcome. You know, I say us just... As Texans, <laughs> the greatest country in the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but again, Steve, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. It. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome, Steve. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> that was a well-rounded conversation <laughs> within 60 minutes. <laughs> oh, Tillman? Oh, Tillman. Tillman. Yeah. Tillman for Tita. Yeah. Tillman and Russell got real close last year. I thought it, Tillman was going to buy Gringo's. One time. Yeah.
I have you read his book, uh, Shut Up and Listen? No, I haven't. My wife got it for me. I just haven't read it yet, though. It's a great book. We powered through it. He bought a copy for me for him. We powered through it. And I wonder how he's doing today. Two days. I wonder, you know, relative to everything that's gone on, the hospitality business has just absolutely been decimated by all of this. 96% of revenue went out the door during the shutdown. Wow. 96%. How do you survive that? And he has very deep pockets. <laughs> well, one thing he talked about in his book, he says, uh, get debt even when you don't need it. Because when times are good, they're going to be bad. And when times are bad, they're going to be good again. So he has a, a good few pages around obtaining as much capital on your side so that if you want to use it for whatever reason, to grow or to consolidate or to buy the back a public company. So he you know, just has tons of capital access. Greg Brenneman, um, this is another one of his things. He wrote, he wrote a book called Right Away All at Once. And one of the things he talks about is fortifying your balance sheets, fortified balance sheets. And that's, that's what it is. It's, it's having that kind of bandwidth to go after it in, in a heartbeat and need it. Small businesses got slacked during the shutdown. We could probably talk about this a little bit too. Uh, because they, well, if, a, if an individual household should have three to six months of emergency funds, so should a small business. Theoretically, sure, right? Who doesn't want to have a big savings account? Right. But as small businesses, and even large businesses, you save that much capital on the books, what a waste of opportunity cost. If you're so not using much. that for marketing yeah. and for growth and development, for hiring, for training and outreach and customer appreciation and so on and so forth, just letting dead money sit dead money. That's, oh, yeah, completely. So it's a balancing act. Make sure you have enough capital to survive. But in, this, in our environment, we got to grow. Yeah. We grew up from being... Uh, one stop barbershop to be so this the, is completely y'all's concept started with my ex-wife now still a great friend business partner in 2015 how many how many locations are there around? 51 wow. 49 in texas and two in tennessee how creative are they for uh, you know let, let's say the one on 1488 um for a, a shop owner So we have 16 corporate-owned stores and 36 franchisees, 36 franchise locations. A good franchisee for us is a local, either local business owner or a local employee. And Zach's a perfect franchisee. Okay. Zach's a firefighter, good income. His wife's a nurse. Right. They don't need this capital. Uh, they don't need this capital in order to uh, survive. Right. Right. So one of the prohibitive factors around growing a franchise business is largely predicated on SBA loans. And one of the things about an SBA loan is you have to show that you have income otherwise so you don't need the profit of the business to be able to support your general overhead right. expenses, such as your mortgage and utilities and food. So perfect scenario for us is we have somebody that's like a firefighter and nurse combo that has a lot of freedom and flexibility in their scheduling and can run the business on the days they're not actively managing their yeah. own career and op occupation. Uh, average cost of startup for a tune-up is between two hundred fifty dollars and $300,000 total all in. Uh, that's before any landlords incentives or TI dollars. All right, so if it's an SBA loan, they're putting between fifty and sixty thousand dollars up, financing the rest over a ten-year time frame. Uh, on a sales volume, our goal for sales is around eight thousand a week in sales per location, puts it right about four hundred and twenty-four and thirty thousand dollars a year. And on that, after debt servicing, if the locations are ran properly, it's about twelve to fifteen percent profit margin after the SBA loans are paid. If it's a cash payment deal where there's no SBA loans involved, they're seeing between 18 and 21% profit. Great. Cyclical in nature. Sure. Uh, um, our busiest season is 
uh, our busiest three days, right before school, right before Thanksgiving, right before Christmas. So this will be our busiest week of the year. I, I, I was surprised. Like every time I go in to the <coughs> store on 1488, my son goes there as well. He loves it. Um, when I told him I got my hair cut there illegally, he's like, Dad, I love that place. That place is awesome. <laughs> he loves bourbon. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> he doesn't. Let's <laughs> go so hang out. You know, so when we developed this, I, I just had to get the run of the mill. I don't want to – he doesn't love bourbon, but <laughs> – Loves the idea of it. <laughs> it's okay. I, I was tired it's of just getting, a cool concept. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting tired of getting my hair cut at the just kind of the run of the mill haircut places where it's in and out, chop shops. And yeah. not to name any specific <clears throat> concepts because it's not – little my position to throw other brands under the bus because they'll have right. their upside but we're not of the opinion that you should be from from sitting down in the chair to leaving the environment eight to ten minutes because every haircut's different every texture hair the personality the client what they want so some haircuts might be eight 12 minutes it might be 15 20 minutes whatever it takes to make sure it's a perfect haircut and that relationship developed between the stylist and the client is most important to us the the economics makes sense for us to be able to do it if we only have to do two haircuts an hour that's the goal for every stylist to do two haircuts an hour. It's 30 minutes a client. Uh, we can definitely do that. Do you guys ever read raving fans? Hmm. Um, so it's not enough to satisfy a customer. The whole idea is you got to turn them into a raving fan mm -hmm. because think about how many times you've gone to a restaurant and the food sucked. It was cold when it got there. Uh, the waiter waitress wasn't all that friendly and you go to the cashier and they say, how everything, how was everything? And you say, I was fine. You know, you're satisfied. We've become satisfied with subpar, sub-quality um, service in the United States, right? So it only takes one more restaurant down the street that opens up where the food's awesome, where the service is spectacular, where it's, there's incredible value add, right? Then you become a raving fan You'll never go back to that other place. And when the other place closes, they're like, wow, I don't know what happened, man. All my customers were satisfied. Why did we go out of business? Because mm -hmm. they were satisfied, but you didn't create raving fans. And that's the whole thing. When I went into tune-up, you go in there, and it is, it's, an, it, it's, it, it's an extraordinary experience. You create a raving fan. For every one person that you satisfy, they're only going to tell three people. For every one person that you piss off, they're going to tell, tell 12. Mm -hmm. But when you create a raving fan, you create all these evangelists of your of your business, and that's what you guys do so well. People's behavior are, manipula are manipulated or uh, changed by two ways, either manipulation or inspiration. Right. You know, manip manipulation is that short-term sale, the promotion, the, yeah. the text campaign, the whatever, <laughs> but... Those that really love your brand, they love the experience. There is, what is what is the, uh, I think it's a scripture that says, love covers the multitude of, e of, e of evil, yeah. I think. Uh, but when you really love a business, you know that they're going to have an off day. And it's like, I got it, right? It's not a big deal, right? You, you'll come back again because you're inspired by the experience that you get. There's there's an intrinsic value that fulfills a, a need sometimes you can't really pinpoint right? But you feel special. You feel appreciated. You feel valued. You feel like you actually, you come to a place where you belong. And it's like right. a cheers, right? Yeah. Everybody knows your name Yeah. and you sit down and it's not just a haircut. It's, it's a time to kind of step away. I told one of my buddies, I'm like, uh, it's the only place that you can uh, step away from your honey to-do list and go, I'm gonna go get my haircut. And there's also a bar. <laughs> you can't just say, I'm gonna go to the bar for a couple of hours in the middle of the Saturday or Sunday, not happening. But you can certainly step into a tune-up and kind of have an escape, you know? Just come and be a guy for a little bit and hang out, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very cool. 
Um, it seems like everybody there is enjoying what they're doing. So this is, you, you brought a scripture verse. I'll give you one too. So this is, this is from David, King David. He's Psalm 37, 4. He said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Meaning that if you want a BMW, God will give you a BMW, but love God, enjoy his presence in your life. And he'll tell your heart what to seek after mm. and what it will find joy and fulfillment in. And I think at the end of the day, most people really do enjoy serving others mm-hmm. and um, and uh, getting that attaboy, you know, that pat on the back mm. of, man, that was wonderful. That was great. That was a mm. wonderful experience. That That's a noble thing to desire and to find a sense of, of um, um, fulfillment in. I think you guys do it really well. He, uh, you know, attitude is reflective of leadership. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, there's just Anthony's story of how we came up and to be in a position as a CEO, it is, it is the top level position of servitude. And, you know, I hear him on the phone with franchisees. I hear him on the phone with customers. We'll get emails through the website from customers. He'll call them straight yeah. up. I don't know how many CEOs actually have that much of a pulse of not only their customer, but also the team, you know, he referenced walking to the back and talking to the dishwasher. He does the same thing. Matter of fact, he'll get up to balanced foods down the street here, in Magnolia. He'll hop in with the kitchen 4am. Then he'll go to work out every day, every day. And then he'll come here. Right. And he'll, you know, deal with the multitude of texts and phone calls from staff and franchisees and counterparts and, and you know, owners. I mean, it, <coughs> it, it's a shit show. It's crazy. Like to hear right. every day, but the, the thing that uh, you'll always see, and that I still think it's one of the greatest testaments is it's action. That's the separator, right? right? And when you, you walk into any location, he drove up to Dallas um, uh, and hopped into a VIP event. It was a, you know, one of the locations uh, did a VIP event for their VIP members and he showed up. I mean, it, VIPs didn't know who he was, didn't even know he was coming, but he showed up and it, it, it just, it reflects in it, in it, in it, it it inspires the team. It inspires people to realize there's so much heart in this, you know, coming from an idea that launched in 2015 to still seeing a guy that um, for a lot of companies could sit on the perch, right? And uh, watch his fingerlings do their work. But usually it's a race for who's here first. <laughs> it, but it might be here the office first. It's not all bad in the stores. I get to hang out with guys and <laughs> staff and everything and drink whiskey and it's not all. It's, it's, not, it's not the toughest life. <laughs> I, I recently, we lost our CIO, Chief Information Officer of the company. He's a friend of mine still to this day. I've known him since 2008 or so, 12, 13 years. I was in his wedding, uh, vacations together, the whole nine yards. One of his gripes, come on board with this company. He worked with me for a previous company, MyFit Foods, and then left and went to work at CBNI. Big giant, right? Behemoth of a company. <coughs> And then those big corporations, I, I kind of consider it calling, you become corporate on me because you're only within your little bubble, right? right? And you only talk to the person you report to and you talk to the team that reports to you. And that's it. And you never go outside your bubble. You're not even allowed to. You don't even think about thinking about talking to somebody else. You don't go to 10 offices over, the next building over, or any other departments. And it always frustrated me because one of his gripes was, you spend more time at the stores than you do with your own team. My, my team meeting, my direct reports. Right. And right now I have 12 direct reports that report to me. At that time it was 14. Uh, and I said, yeah, you're 100% right. Like, you're the CIO of the company. You're probably the technically smartest person in the company. You know exactly what to do. But what the hell can I tell you that you know what to do? Well, I'm going to spend all the time I possibly can at these locations <coughs> down specific. 
and it remembers me back to in 2012, did a capital raise for MyFit Foods with uh, TSG Consumer Group. Big three billion, at the time they were a $3 billion equity fund, now they're a $9 billion equity fund. Chuck Esserman was the CEO of it. Chuck used to work directly for Mitt Romney at Bain. He has a, a business, he has a math degree from MIT and then a, a master's from Stanford. Went to work at Bain Capital directly from Mitt Romney and a branch out of his own. Just a wicked smart. They're the exact same gripe. Because I always had a thing where I go to two locations a day. Mm-hmm. So I usually start in the morning at a location. Right. And then I did my data location. And they thought it was a waste of my time. Oh my gosh. So and, and I, you need to spend more of your time doing CEO duties. I'm like, I got a whole damn team. Yeah. I got a whole, if, if then what am I doing, right? If I, I see my job as a CEO being in a lot like what you spend your time, you know, being as a CEO of Montgomery County, almost in the nature, right? In your district, CEO of your district uh, is spending as much time with the constituents as possible. I, I spend way more time than most guys do, but it's, that's where I get my joy. So that I'm going to date myself. There, this is a this is a book that came out twenty some odd years ago while you guys were still in junior high. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called uh, it, and it was it was um, it's written by the CEO of Loud Cloud, and he had this this theory. It's called the Law of Crappy People. You ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. It's the Law of Crappy People, meaning your first hire and the people you hire are slightly less committed to the vision than you are. And the people that they hire are slightly less committed to the vision than, than those and so on and so forth. As it gets down farther down the pyramid, um, the vision gets further and further away from its original design. So the first group of people that you hire have got to be absolutely sold out to the vision, which yours are right, which enables you to go and really start proselytizing at the in-store level. To make sure that to make sure that the vision is protected and guarded mm-hmm. and is advanced. We call it the telephone game. We sat in a circle and there's ten of us and I sent the sentence in your ear. By the time I got back around, it may be half. Right? So yeah. the vision. So oftentimes I find myself I have to say it hundred and fifty percent of what I really want. So when it comes back around, ninety percent is success. It's still enough. there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It really is. Yeah. Jim Rohn called it management by wandering. Remember that? If, I mm. did, if you read any of his stuff, mm-hmm. and it's that you cannot stay in your office. You can't stay in that CEO um, um, paradigm. Mm-hmm. You, you'll miss where the vision is, is going awry and where communication isn't working. Mm-hmm. Good for you. That's cool. It, it, I, th- I think there's, a, there's this assumption or even an expectation that we're in this entrepreneur era where everybody wants to be a CEO of something. They want the, they want the title, but the real job that it, that is required to be effective, not just hold a title, but be effective in that role is different. And, you know, unless you sit in that chair and you carry that weight on a daily basis, theoretically, you may, you may have ideas of how you think he should do or the decisions that you think he should make. But ultimately, unless you're in that chair carrying that weight, you don't know the priorities that need to be done on a daily basis that, he carries on a daily basis. You know, right. you, everybody, critics are always on the sidelines, right? It's easy to criticize from the sidelines. But until you're in that position, you just don't know what it takes. And when you carry the weight of the stack of unemployment forms that came through during the pandemic and, and the look on his face that I would see and just the responsibilities that go with that are immense. And so many people look at the idea 
of you know entrepreneurship or business ownership. I want to own my own business one day. There are a lot of business owners right now that have had to carry that weight, and it was kind of a surprise. Um, but when you when you look at somebody and they have a pulse, they they get up and there's a certain routine that they follow, um, and you start to wonder rather than criticize, go how are they doing that? Versus why are they not doing this for me or why is this happening to me? But why are they doing that? You know, you look at a guy with a he was a CEO of an eight figure company who came from grinding at a very young age with a very hard vision for himself and a momentum that he has to carry that is infectious to other people. It is. And that carries over. But like you said, you got to go into it 150% because you know, it's going to trickle. And you know, that again, from everybody's got a, got an opinion about something about what they think you should do better. Just like citizens talking to a politician. Well, I think you need to do this. And you know, when it's coming from a self-serving position, but in a business to be effective every day, and what he has to do or what anybody in a, in a position of, of real influence to make decisions, unless you've been in that position, unless you have carried that weight and it goes beyond a title where a lot of people look at getting a title or they get a promotion as the reward. Now they can sit back. Yeah. No, that's when the real work begins. Now you got to earn that every day, you know, yeah. and the, 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 the involvement, the engagement of every franchisee and every store manager and every staff member from every position, they come to work to, you know, to create a livelihood. We want them to be inspired. You want them to look at it from an, an eagle eye perspective, but they never will because it's two different positions. They're looking at it from their eagle eye of their life and their bills and their requirements and their pains and their struggles. It, it, it there's a lot to really influence people to really buy into a culture. Um, and that's where a lot of people miss it as they get so caught up in, <laughs> you know, what they think they should have or what somebody else has and they don't have enough of. But, you know, I've, I've heard, I've heard frustration from him of where it's like, God, can't you just, just do it? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, yeah. the, the, the opportunities that we're given um, in any job is if you go to work and you're not trying to earn that role from a position of gratitude, you're coming into it given me mediocre at best because you feel like the, the, the company, the job, something, you know, uh, you're deserving of something and you got to earn it. And every day he gets up and he goes to the gym and he goes to, he goes to balanced and he comes in, he's on the phone, hear his phone go off 900 million times every day and answers just about every phone call. And people shouldn't criticize when you look at anybody that has amassed any type of accomplishment, but go, how did they do it? Not, I wish I had it, but how did they do that? Yeah. How does he get up at 4 a.m.? Go, go to Mount, then go work out and grind like he does and then do all the, all the stuff that he does and then still continue to run the day-to-day -day as well with 12, 14 direct reports and then take the phone calls of, you know, a ton of people from the store level. Like there's, there's a lot in business ownership, you know that. And then you're also taking phone calls from constituents and there, there's a lot of weight to that. And in the midst of that, though, you, you can't be, as a CEO, you can't be constantly swimming upstream. There's got to be some harmony with the key people in your life mm -hmm. that are in the organization. So when um, many years ago, when I worked for Johnson & Johnson, they flew me around the United States doing practice management consulting. And one of the things that I would encourage them to do, I'd say, okay, you do an annual review with all of your employees, but with your key people, you need to be doing quarterly one-on-ones. So once every three months, and you say to that key person, 
I'm not responsible for this quarterly one-on-one. You are. So you're responsible for getting my, with my admin, scheduling it with me. And then in that quarterly one-on-one, it's, 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 not, it's not a review of, <clears throat> of necessarily your numbers. It's a review of how are you doing? How are we doing? What are your personal goals? How can I help you with those personal goals? So you're making it more of an intimate relationship, which my father, the greatest generation, that you know, my dad was always mm. like, man, never become friends, never get close to the people that you manage and that you lead. I uh, never want to do that. And, and so early in my career, I kind of took that to heart. And I think it was, it was bad counsel for my dad. Mm. And um, different I, era. It, it was a completely different era, right? Yeah. And maybe it really worked well for them. But um, I don't think it works well with people. They've got to know that you care. They've got to know that you know what their family's going through and what hardships they face or else it's just a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And your key people will, will not buy into the vision as a result of it. He has simple well criteria. He, you know, he wants to do business with and work with those people he can sit down and have a beer with. Yeah. Or whiskey or tequila, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Yeah. With your companies, do you, um, how many staff do you have? A dozen. Yeah. How long, have they, been, how long have they been with you? Um, some eight and 10 years, mm-hmm. eight years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife really runs the business now. Mm. So, um, day-to-day operations, she runs it. She has her MBA, kids are grown up and this has been like perfect for her. So yeah. she kind of just stepped into the role and, um, um, just started taking more and more stuff off my plate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Tillman Fertitta said, uh, you ask anybody that has worked with him as long as they have, and they'll tell you, uh, and he, he, and I quote him, he said, uh, I'm the hardest person to work for, but they won't want to work for anybody else, which says a lot, right? Because he keeps driving that standard, that expectation, but they keep rising up to it. And there's a natural part of people where you kind of like that. Right. Right. Because you, you kind of need that level to keep being raised and keep being expected to do more because it just drives the best out of people. Tillman right? knows who he is, though. Right. And mm-hmm. so he knows who he is and he knows what he can get out of people. Mm-hmm. Did, I don't know if you guys read Steve Jobs book. Um, uh, the, the, it was his autobiography. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it, I think it published right after his death. But you, you read this book and. You're like, man, this guy was a slave driver. He was a slave master. He was mm-hmm. one of the nast could be one of the nastiest people in the whole world. And you look at what he achieved. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's funny because after the book came out, there were a lot of CEOs, young CEOs are, that, you know, kind of adopted this, this autocratic, nasty, um, tyrannical kind of role as a CEO. And they said, well, work for jobs, it'll work for me. No, not necessarily. It worked for jobs. And, you know, I wonder if Apple would be around today if, if Steve Jobs had lived. Because you, you, as you read th- through the book, a lot of people just, they fell away. They fell out of his universe because they just couldn't do it anymore. They just were so burned out. And the key thing about Tillman is Tillman knows who he is and he knows how to manage people and he knows how hard he can push and he knows how much he has to invest in people. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think most people get that in leadership. Anthony, you've had, you have a core group of people that have kind of been with you from my fit days and been with you for many years. Uh, what do you think keeps them connected to you? Cause you, you've got, the, you've got a, 
you've got a circle that have been with you through a lot over the years. Uh, Same as growth. People love the growth. Be, it, it's a lot easier to be a CEO of a growing business or a series of growing businesses to be a stagnant business or a retracting business. You know, like the, anybody remember the last CEO of Blockbuster Video or Radio Shack? <laughs> I can imagine just the, the Circuit City, the, the layoffs, the pullback, the drawdown, right? The negative. We went through this in March and April. You know, we do all this work to build a company uh, and then just very, very little to take it down. Takes six weeks to build a company. Takes us two days to take six six to seven weeks to build a location. Takes us two days to rip the stuff out of it. So I think people love the fact that um, we're at least giving our all to grow tomorrow. I mean, our plan for next year, we have a 2021 plan. <laughs> we'll end this year at 54 locations between the three concepts. <clears throat> our goal next year is to surpass 100. Wow. Very cool. Regardless of economic conditions or COVID impact or so on and so forth. Awesome. So we'll grow. Neat. We'll grow. Mm-hmm. People love growth. Mm-hmm. Professional growth leads to personal growth. Mm-hmm. Professional stagnation leads to personal stagnation, so on and so forth. So you can kind of leverage this. Even though it's stressful, they can leverage this growth to grow on the personal end. Self-confidence is rooted in progress. Without progress, you lose self-confidence, right? Yeah. You need the grind. We need the grind. Yeah. Being isolated doesn't help, right? Yeah. We need that sense of purpose. Yep. Yeah. We don't need the redundancy. Mm. Same, you know, that old mentality, you go to work for GM after you leave the army in 25 years, you retire and you get a gold Rolex and you get a 2% <laughs> pay bump each year. Right. Right. And then your medical benefits increase by 4% a year. So you're really losing 2%. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time you retire, you pass away in a few years because you just so. And you got to hawk the watch boring, to make retirement. Right. <laughs> Assembly right. line workers. Those yeah. are of the old age. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine retiring? I'm not going to retire. I did for a month. I killed all the flowers. After I sold my fit, I went to Vegas. It's a good weekend. It's a long weekend, Steve. I'll tell you what. I had a hangover for a couple days afterwards. And then uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do because it came unexpected. And uh, a lot of my flowers, I had rose bed along the whole line of the property, water every single day, three or four times. They all died. Uh, I killed them all. I go, the worst landscaping guy ever. <laughs> so I had to find something to do. <laughs> That's great. You know, it's funny, you know, the older generation was, uh, you know, work to retire. Then you retire, then you can live. Yeah. And then you retired and you, well, you die two years later because you don't have a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, we're in an era now where, I mean, people are certainly working longer. Um, but it, it's, it's almost, you know, I, I love to work. I love to work. If I'm idle, I get bored. I get antsy. Like I got to open up my laptop. I got to get on my phone. I got to research. I got to listen. I got to do, I got to work. Like there is, I love to, I know some people may think that's ridiculous. I love my wife and my kids, but when they go to bed, I go back to work. Like I love it. Yeah. Thank God for our, our technological age that we can open up the laptop or do all the work from our phone. Um, I love it. And I don't, I, I can't ever foresee not working. You know? Yeah. 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 I'm the same way. My dad uh, is 94 and I don't, you know, after he, he sold the business to my brother, um, he didn't stop. He just continued. He just shifted into something else and mm. it keeps your mind fresh. It keeps mm-hmm. you on, on your toes, keeps you alert, keeps you learning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it keeps you needy, right? Um, we, we say of veterans that 
the reason they struggle when they get off the plane coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan is because in one fell swoop, they lose their sense of mission, yeah, sense of purpose, yeah. sense of unit cohesion, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and a job. Mm-hmm. And all four of those things are critically important for our lives to yeah. stay healthy and strong and vibrant. Mm-hmm. All that? the way through into your 80s and 90s. Yeah. Like you, I have to go raise some capital. I do too, so man. I got to go to work. I have a meeting here in, in, That's a wrap. in 25 That's minutes. That's so. <laughs> Potential investor. Thanks. <laughs> you know, appreciate you. Sure we'll see you at some restaurant or... Yeah, you will. Something soon. You will, you will.